Tonight's reading from the New Testament is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? God, our hope is in you. You are the one that has preserved your word for thousands of years. You're the one that has given your spirit that we might understand it. And you are the one that has called us here today. No one is here by accident. And so we trust that you have a work to do. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see Christ risen high and lifted up. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Behind some of the films we love the most, um, films that really, you know, sort of inspire us, films like Star Wars or Harry Potter or The Matrix or Lord of the Rings, there's an ancient plot line. And scholars call it the hero's journey plot line. Some of you may be familiar with that. It usually starts with a character receiving some call to take a journey. And then that character experiences hesitation and reluctance. And then they have a supernatural encounter which aids them to take that first step. And then after that, they face trials and tribulations and they want to give up. But then there's a mentor that comes and encourages them. And lastly, they make the victory. They take the step ahead. You, know, you see this clearly in Star Wars. Right? Ben Kenobi uh, reveals Luke's past and introduces the cry from Leia for him to come. But he says, no, I need to work in the harvest. But then he has an encounter, the Force, and that enables him to move forward. But then there's trials. There's lightsaber training, right? There's temptation from the dark side. And so this plays out in different ways, in different stories that we love. And I think the reason these films connect with us so deeply is because you and I were created for a hero's journey. We were made for that. 
And in that way, these films aren't so much fiction as they are a reflection of a truer story, a deeper story. Jared Tolkien would say it was the true myth, the Christian faith behind it. And yet, sin, what the Bible understands as sin, works against that very thing. Sin does a couple things. One, sin sinks, sin seeks to trivialize your life. It, seeks, it, it works to make your life less than it should be, that you would live beneath what you were supposed to live. You know, instead of a hero's journey, we turn it in for maybe a hero sandwich. Uh, instead of a hero's journey, it's cowardly comforts that we decide to keep. Maybe it's a life that just focuses on career, or a life that just focuses on kids, or a life that just focuses on retirement. We make our life journey just that. But sin also has an effect. It seeks to lock us up. So we won't open the door. It locks us with doubt. It locks us in fear. So that you won't take the journey that God has called you to. Literally, the disciples here are locked behind a door, right? They're locked in from the mission that they were to participate in. They're fearful. And maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's a gift you've never had the courage to use or a vision that you would launch. Maybe for you, it would be a question that you're afraid to ask, or a service that you've been called to render. I think all of us have these things. I, I was thinking back to a conversation with a friend of mine, and I've mentioned this once before. Uh, I think it was when we both turned 50, and uh, we've been friends for literally 49 years, like that long. And uh, that's a long time, right? And, uh, and he said to me, um, he confessed to me as we were at dinner, you know, as I look back on my life, I don't know if there's one major decision I didn't make that was out of fear. That's a hard thing to realize, right? A hard thing to hear. For the disciples, there was a turning point. That would have been their story, but they have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so pivotal? If you turn to the front page of your bulletin, I have a, a quote here from a theologian, N.T. Wright, who reflects quite a bit about the resurrection. And he says this, the resurrection is not an isolated supernatural oddity proving how powerful, if apparently arbitrary, God can be when he wants to be, nor is it at all a way of showing that there is indeed a heaven awaiting us after death. Rather, it is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying there is the resurrection of Jesus wasn't this random event that God decided to do or this sideshow miracle that God performed so people would say, wow, look what God could do, or even to say, hey, there's life after death. The resurrection was to say, God has a mission, and you were made to participate in that mission in that purpose. It was a trumpet blast. And it's after the disciples encounter the risen Jesus Christ, the doors fling open, and the gospel, the kingdom of God, spreads all over the world, and here we are today, where the kingdom has spread literally all over the world because they opened the door. No, God opened the door. And that gives me a lot of hope for myself. 
in my fearfulness to take the missing. And they were also filled with joy and courage, even to the point of giving their own lives for that mission. Could you imagine doing that? Seriously. Could you imagine rejoicing to give your life for something? And so I think that's what we get here. We have an opportunity in this passage. The way that the resurrected Christ releases us into the mission of God, conquering our doubt and conquering our fear. So let's look at those two things together. First of all, the way the risen Christ conquers our doubt. Now, the objection, I think, that immediately jumps out of the passage, especially with respect to Thomas, is, well, if they're seeing the risen Christ was the turning point, and we don't get to see the risen Christ, how in the world does that apply to us? Right? Maybe you'd say, if I had that benefit, if I had a chance to see him, that would change my life as well. Well, I think the reason we know that's not true is Jesus' words to Thomas. Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, for modern folks, seeing is believing. We think if I'm going to believe something, then I need to see it. I need to judge whether or not, to, whether or not it's true. But I want you just for a moment, think about all the things that we believe but we don't see. Number one, the headline news from the, around the world, right? Most of us haven't seen those events, but every day we believe them. I walk for the last nine years three or four times a week past the news amp. And I walk by those newspapers in the front, if you know it. There's a bunch of uh, every day, the front lines. And not once have I saw a group of people go, yeah, right. You know, not once have I seen them laugh and go, are you trying to tell me that that actually happened? Even the most incredible events, right? Maybe it's an upset in a presidential election. Or maybe it's the Cubs winning the World Series, right? You still didn't find anybody going, no, there's no way. You and I believe things every day that we don't see. Or think about the life stories of those we trust and love. Maybe you make a call home on Easter and you're just talking and someone says, oh, so-and-so, I didn't get to tell you, Jessica got an A on her chemistry test. You probably don't say, could you send me that exam, please? You know. <laughs> or, hey, you'll never believe this, grandmother got up and danced for her 90th birthday. Again, you believe it. Or take history, that's the big one, right? Whether it's Julius Caesar, Thomas Jefferson, the Battle of Vienna, the Battle of Antietam. Why do you believe those things occurred? There's a, a painting that hangs in the uh, rotunda of the Capitol. And it's called uh, The Surrender of Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown. That's a big event in American history, a big event. And it was painted by John Trumbull, who was an aide to George Washington, but he was not at that event. But where does he get the information? Well, here's one. At about 12 o'clock, the combined army was arranged and drawn up in two lines, extending more than a mile in length. The Americans were drawn up in a line on the right side of the road, and the French occupied the left, and so on and so on. How does this happen? It happens because every day you and I trust credible eyewitnesses. That's the source of much of what we believe, isn't it? That you have to trust a credible eyewitness. 
unless you happen to be a time traveler. That's what you're going to have to depend upon. Now, often people reject the Bible because they regard it as oral history, anonymous stories that were collected over hundreds and hundreds of years that have been changed. But if you take time to read the Bible, you understand that that's not how it regards itself. The Bible instead is understood to be oral tradition, history passed down orally. Unlike many of the accounts we have of ancient books that we trust, the New Testament we find was written the following generation that it occurred. And we have right over 5,000 manuscripts. We've talked about that before. But more importantly, there was an eyewitness ethic. Let me give you an example concerning the revelation, or rather the resurrection. For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is from the Apostle Paul, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today. Now what's important about that? Obviously, the account of what's happening here is pretty amazing. These are supernatural events. And so God knows that people are going to doubt. So what do you have? Paul saying, if, if you don't believe me, or Luke saying, if you don't believe me, you can then go and ask these other people. You can ask these eyewitnesses. Because he wanted a credible document to go forward. He had to have a credible, credible document to go forward. Jesus was asking Thomas to be a model of future believers. He was asking Thomas, I want you to trust the word of your brothers. I want you to trust the word of the apostles. But instead, Thomas ends up being a model of the modern unbeliever that says, you know, it's only true if I deem it's true. I'm the one that gives authority to truth. And so until I decide that something is true, I'm not going to embrace it. But the fact is, none of us really live that way. None of us live with that ourselves being the supreme judge and authority. It would be impossible to live. But the good news here, and I will say ultimately, Thomas's problem is not evidence. I mean, he is such a great example. He doesn't just say, until I see Jesus, I'm not going to believe in him. He says, you know, until I see his hands, and until I see the wounds in his side, right? He's sort of driving this point until I see specifics. And Jesus is so merciful and so compassionate, Thomas doesn't realize that Jesus is listening in. He has that ability. And he says to Thomas, go ahead, touch my wounds. Come on in. We don't know if Thomas did, but he says, come on in. You can touch my wounds. Thomas's problem was not intellectual. His problem was he couldn't humble himself. He couldn't trust the testimony outside of himself. But there's good news, because he moves from doubt to faith. And all you and I need to move from doubt to faith today is an incredible, credible testimony. And that's what God has given us in the scripture. That's all you and I need right now. You might come here going, I wish it were true, Glenn. I wish the gospel is true. I wish that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I want to say to you this evening, it is possible. It is possible for you today to move from doubt to faith if you are willing to trust a credible testimony, something beyond yourself. 
And when we do, two things happen. One is we come to know God personally. It's very, I think, important that Thomas doesn't say, he falls on his knees and he doesn't say, God and Lord. He goes, my God and my Lord. My Lord and my God. It's one of the great confessions of Jesus Christ's deity, that he's the God-man. Thomas is able to say, you are the one. You know, this is the one of whom all our earthly relationships just hint at and fall short. This is the father of fathers, whether you had a great one or didn't have one. This is the one who is like a mother that could never forget her baby on her breast. This is the spouse, the suitor we've always wanted. This is the BFF we've always wanted, the friend that sticks closer to the brother. This is the one you say, you really are my heart's desire. And you know this, the more you and I try to look to someone else as our heart's desire, we drain them or we become disappointed. It'll be a failed mission until you and I are energized from the inside out. The thing that energizes us in life isn't just a mission. It's a mission driven by relationship. The most heroic missions have been driven by relationship. I was sitting uh, recently with a member in our church, and uh, he's a soldier, a Marine, and we were talking about, you know, what inspires people. We were talking about faith and vocation and this idea that I, I, do, a, you know, I do my job because I understand it means something in God's economy and kingdom. And he said, you know, as much as there were great ideals that I think, you know, were there when I went into conflict, the reason I was fighting were for the guys next to me. It was relationship. You have to have that encounter. I have to have that encounter. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. This room is filled with people that would say, I encountered the resurrected Christ through God's credible witness by his spirit. I'd be one of them. Kind of mysterious, but I met the living Jesus many years ago. And you can meet the resurrected Christ. But there's a second thing. The mission in our life then gets resurrected. There's a great little line in uh, the second film of The Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, where Eowyn says to Aragorn, you know, Aragorn is, is sort of the king in hiding, but he's heroic, and she looks to him after a battle and says, the men have found their captain in you. They have found their captain. And when you find the resurrected Christ, you have found your captain. You have found the one that leads the message, mission, and all of a sudden, whether it's your vocation or your parenting, the way that you are married, the kind of neighbor you are, the kind of agent you are in the city, it takes on a different meaning because it's become a mission. You can't have a mission without a captain. And if you're the captain of the mission, it ain't going to go that well because you don't have the authority to lead it on. And so we're given a mission. But how does he then move us beyond that? We talked about the way the risen Christ seeks to conquer our doubt, but lastly, how does he seek to conquer our fear? Now, we all have false fears. There can be false fears, like fear of the dark, fear of the number 13, fear of, you know, Friday the 13th, 
fear of clowns. Really, they're just clowns. I've met some clowns. They've done no damage to me at all, right? They've done some good to me, actually. So these unrealistic fears, I was thinking of our dog today. We were cooking an Easter lunch, and as it happens on occasion, you know, we got something in the oven, it spills over, and our fire alarm goes off. And whenever that happens, I hear our dog just coming up the stairs. Goes on the door, I let it in, and, and she comes in, and it's not enough for her to just be in the room. She wants to get on me, but then she wants to get on my lap, but she won't stay on my lap. Sometimes when she's afraid of a thunderstorm, she'll run up to us, and you know, she'll jump on the couch, and, and we'll hold her, and then we'll put a blanket over and hold her, but it's not enough. She refuses to be comforted. Her fear will not go away, right? It's an unrealistic fear. Well, you and I are like, are like this, right? So Jesus speaks fear, or rather peace, into our fear. You heard this earlier as Bob was praying, this idea that Jesus, it was a common greeting in those days to say peace, but if you read the Gospel of John, you realize it was a loaded term, and the fact that Jesus said it twice meant he was trying to emphasize something. What was he meaning to give us? In John 16, we hear this, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There's a few things. One is Jesus acknowledges there are legitimate threats to our peace in this world. You know, uh, we don't believe this idea that I'm just sort of going to meditate myself away from reality. There is real threat to it. But there's something we find in Jesus' wounds. Someone had said this, Jesus' wounds are his credentials to a suffering race of human beings. As they see the wounds of Jesus Christ, they understand, yes, yeah, suffering happens, but it doesn't keep you down. Those that are connected with the resurrection man, that suffering is not the end of their story. He has overcome the suffering. He still bears the wounds, but he's resurrected. It's a very curious thing. Our suffering is not in vain. Your suffering is not in vain. But another thing about that peace, it's ultimately overcoming death, overcoming the world. I was thinking about a very poignant scene in um, the, the second Deathly Hallows film if you've seen any of the Harry Potter films. And it really is a powerful scene. Uh, Harry realizes, and uh, again, this is going to be a spoiler, but come on, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Harry realizes that he's going to have to sacrifice his life to keep his friends safe. And the way they build it up in the film is really beautiful. And he walks into this dark forest, and he takes the golden snitch, right, that it was given to him, and he holds it, which says, I, I open at the close, and he looks at it and says, I'm ready to die. Then he kisses it, and at that point it opens up, and there the resurrection stone appears, right? And he takes the resurrection stone, and he puts it in his hand, and all of a sudden, his murdered mother and father and Lupin and Sirius Jack appear, you know? to give testimony, and he goes, where have you been? And they said, we've always been here. And then he says, is, does it hurt? Does it hurt to be killed? 
And he said, it's just going to be like sleep, falling asleep. And then he says, will you stay with me till the end? Will you stay with me till the very end? And so this picture, as he meets his demise, is that there he is surrounded by those that have overcome death. I just, I, I thought about that picture, uh, the first martyr, Stephen, when he's martyred and he looks up and he says, I see the Son of Man standing in heaven. You know, whether or not you guys get granted a vision, or I do on that day, the bottom line is we are surrounded by the witnesses, the resurrected ones, because death has been overcome. We long for that. That's just an example. Why does that film do that? Why does that film touch people so deeply? You read some of the remarks, and they're not from people that have faith. They're, they're just like, you know, I just wept when I saw that. It fills us with hope. That hope is realized in the Christian gospel. And ultimately, the fear of death is the greatest fear. And this idea that we naturalize death and go it's normal, come on. If you believe death is just death, it is the death of your hopes, it is the death of your relationships, it is the death of your dreams, it is the death of you. Be frightened. Be troubled by it. You and I should be troubled by that. But in the Christian gospel, we're told through the resurrected Christ, we needn't be overwhelmed by it. Because the Son of God, God himself, can break the bonds of death. And then it begins to deal with all those little fears where you think, you know, the death of my career, the death of my marriage, the death of my success, the death of my health. All those other little deaths, we look at the resurrection and it reminds us, I can make it through those because he has risen up. I have hope in a future. Jesus alludes to another way he speaks peace. When he says, the hour is coming when you will leave me alone. You know, guilt is another thing that will steal your peace. And you've got to imagine, they were feeling guilty in that room. Each one of them had abandoned Christ. Peter had denied him. Later in chapter 21, Peter and Jesus will have their own one-on-one -on -one about that. But there they are waiting, and they probably had word that Jesus was risen because the two disciples from Emmaus had already been back, and Mary had come as a testimony. I mean, talk about waiting for Dad to get home, right? Waiting for it to go to the principal's office. That, that sounds bad. I, I looked forward to my dad getting home, except when it was report card day. That was like, oh no, there's the garage door opening up. All of them had fallen short. Just like you and I have fallen short. We've fallen short thanking God, praising God, living according to his great commandments. And it's fair, it's legitimate, because sin is at odds with God, that you and I rightly deserve judgment. I think if we're honest, we have to say that. I'm not going to stand before God and go, I mean, come on. You, this life, you, you probably just thought, hey, you know, where's the Academy Award for life best lived? Uh, I don't have the courage to do that, um, if we're going to be honest. And it's hard to participate in the mission when you're guilty. Some of you may remember that old film, The Mission, right? Robert De Niro plays uh, this guy that is waiting. He was a slave trader. He accidentally kills his brother. And so as they're ascending, 
this mountain. He's now with a priest, a Jesuit priest. He feels like his penance needs to be. He has all his armor and his tools of violence and a net, and they're around his back. And, you know, he's trudging through water with them. He's trudging up a hill, up a mountain with them, until finally it's cut off and let go. It's very hard to participate in the mission when you got that stuff tied to you. And maybe for you, I, I think for all of us, there, it, there is a power and a freedom that God intends for our life. And the thing that holds us back is either true guilt, because we haven't dealt with God, or false guilt. It takes a lot of courage to stand up and go, I am forgiven. I am cleansed. I am righteous. There is no condemnation against me. God has fully forgiven me, and I am a beloved son and daughter, and I have the full rights of sonship. And here I go into my day. That takes some faith to do that. I wonder what we would do if we did. But away, as Jesus speaks peace, there's another peace it reminds us of. We've been studying the book of Romans, and in chapter 5 it says that because we have been justified, we now have peace with God. That means that God sent Christ to reconcile us and make us peace. And how does it happen? The wounds. As they look at the wounds and hear the word of peace, they understand, he took my judgment. He suffered for me. He died for me. He died the life that I should have lived. And at that point, you and I are ready to be sent. And the prophet Isaiah, right, what happens if you know his call? He sees the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God, and immediately he starts thinking about his words and language. He's like, man, the things that people say around me and the things that I agree and I say, my mouth is unclean before you. That's just one area. And God, you know, a seraph takes a, a, a coal off the altar and touches his mouth, and he says, see, I've cleansed you. And then God says, who's going to go for me? i got a mission. And it's at that point Isaiah goes, ooh, send me! Send me! I don't think he would have done that if he wasn't forgiven. It's people that are forgiven that say, send me. And Jesus then says, peace with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What an honor! Amazing! I mean, can you imagine the day when they declared in heaven that the Father and the Spirit were sending the Son on this mission? I mean, first of all, maybe the angels were just shocked. But after that, the esteem and the honor to be called on the mission, and he goes, just as I was sent, you are sent. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Christian is always a sent person wherever they go. I'm going into my job. I didn't just happen to get my job. You've been sent into your job. I didn't just happen to marry, marry this person. I was sent into this marriage. I didn't happen just to get these parents. I was sent to these parents. Whatever it would be. And from there, he says, he breathed on them. And that breathing is an interesting thing. The breathing thing, you know, means renewed life. It's Christ breathing them. But also, it may have been like a parable as Jesus washed the feet, a parable looking ahead to Pentecost. It may have been a foretaste of Pentecost, but the idea is I'm sending you out with my very spirit. In fact, Jesus said, don't leave until you have him or you'll fail the mission. And then lastly, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven then. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. You know, he's not saying that individual Christians or churches have the authority to forgive sins, but rather through the preaching of the gospel. As you bring the gospel of grace to people, as I bring the gospel of grace, if they respond to it, they will be forgiven. If they don't respond to it, they will not be forgiven. That's a weighty thing. What, a, what ambassadors believers are. 
And so we come to the end here, and we think about our lives, and we think about our mission. And I want to I close with a couple questions to ask you. Um, as in Scripture, the risen Christ has conquered our fear and guilt, I want to ask you this. Is your life a to-do to list or a mission? Is your life a to-do list or is it a mission? Is God part of your plan or are you part of his plan? I think that's a different thing. And lastly, are fear and, fear and guilt killing you in the mission or is the resurrected Christ killing fear and guilt in your life as you do the mission? These are the things that he has given us. Uh, you have a holy charge. We have a great Savior. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for commissioning us to a hero's journey. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Uh, I pray that you, resurrected Lord, would banish their doubt through your word and that you would, through your gospel, free them through your peace from fear and doubt. I pray uh, for all here that are looking and considering the journey, that you would make their search of you profitable as they hear words, as they read your stories, as they ask you to teach them and show them the way. We praise you that you're risen. You've done all things well, Jesus, and we give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.